let's get it going. It's uh, Tuesday. We're going to just write off Monday and say that uh, everything just uh, ran snickersnack for you here. Everything except the air conditioning, from what I understand, Susan. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's been just a tad bit on the warm side mm-hmm. um, at my house. It was in the upper 80s yesterday. <laughs> That's in the house, right? <laughs> Yeah, that was inside. That was inside the house. I just, I just told the kids, you know, growing up, we didn't have ACs, so yeah. welcome to my world. What's the big deal? <laughs> exactly right. All right. Yeah. Well, welcome to Midday, everyone. This is our roundtable, and Susan Littlefield says it's going to be a beef checkoff kind of day. It is. You know, we're getting close to lunch, and if you've got kids trying to find things that they like to eat, especially when it's hot, can sometimes be difficult. Well, Clay puts on his chef's hat, shall we say. Coming up at 1219, you're going to learn more about some kid-friendly recipes that are out there utilizing beef. Then at 1245, Chabella steps in with Bethany Bergstrom of Axtell. She's a graduate student on Wheat Stem Sawfly Project that she's working on. That is taking place in Scott's Bluff, so she'll bring us up to date on all of that. And then we're going to head to China. Joan Ruskamp, uh, Nebraska producer, who's also the Beef Board chairman, talks about being in China and how sitting down with a producer, you've got so many of the same you know, likes and dislikes when it comes to the industry, how they're able to communicate and share the story about beef growing in the United States. So it's all about food in a roundabout way Sounds coming like up it today. Is. When you talk about going to China here, I'm going to say, say you know, hold on a second, I've got to update my immunizations. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, tomorrow, tomorrow I'll be talking to you from Dallas, where I'll be surrounded by folks from all over the world. So we'll have more on that, a little tease, coming up tomorrow. I think you can get there without immunizations. Thank you very much, Susan. I hope so. <laughs> Let's move over to Brandon Bennett, who says, fourth time's the charm. Well, when I was a kid growing up, it seemed like every year in the 80s that the Celtics and the Lakers were playing for the NBA World's Championship, even though they're really only representing two countries. Right. Uh, yeah, in this case, uh, it really has been for the last four years, the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Golden State Warriors, this will make fourth time's a charm. The Warriors have won two, the Cavaliers have won one, so the Cavaliers have a chance to tie that up. But yes, for each of the last four years, and another amazing stat about sports right now is four years ago, there was no such thing as the Vegas Golden Knights. They were an expansion team in the NHL, and typically expansion teams uh, pretty much do uh, very poorly. In this case, they've made it to not only the NHL Finals, but also they won the first game. So history is on their side with that. All right. Well, there are, you know, those, like Florida was with the Marlins, right? They, right. they like, became on like gangbusters and then nothing. And then nothing. The uh, Carolina Panthers and the Jacksonville Jaguars both made it to their respective conference championship games in their second year of existence. Right. And then it really haven't done much sense. Let's save some time for Bob Brogan here. Italy's political gridlock is upsetting the market today, and the uh, Dow Industrial is down, oh, about 390 points. A little bit uh, on the downside today. Also, uh, American consumers feeling a bit more optimistic in May. We'll have details on those stories and more coming up. It's all coming your way today on Midday. Well, speaking of weather, we just happen to have uh, a guy who knows quite a bit about it, at least follows it, and uh, that's uh, Paul Perkins, and this is brought to you by Coolden Repair. Let's dig a little into our regional ag weather here, and we've been pretty wet in a lot of places. Exactly, especially into Kansas, uh, right near Hill City, Kansas, a couple of towns with some 
just unbelievable amounts of rain. Pinocchio, Kansas, to the west of Hill City, they had just under 7 inches of rain, 6.9 inches of rain. Moreland, Kansas, which is southwest of Hill City, just under 10 inches of rain in the last 24 hours, 9.88 inches. And maybe adding on to that because more thunderstorms expected as the day goes on. Right now, some rain and thunderstorms moving through the region. Some of that activity from about Cozat to Elm Creek, south to McCook, Cambridge, and Alma, down to about Oberlin and Norton. That's moving to the northeast. Also, some mainly light rain from about Hastings to Superior, down to about Russell, Kansas, along I-70. Then just a few other areas with some very... Thin bands of rain. A lot of our temperatures in the upper 60s to low 70s, but we're already into some 80s and 90s in eastern Nebraska and much of Iowa. The 90s confined to much of central Iowa right now. That's where it was over a lot of that eastern part of our map here. But I'll tell you what, we've been we're here in the center part of the state. We've been right in the what, what would you call a precipitation <laughs> corridor, I guess, the last couple of days and staying there till tomorrow. Exactly. Yeah, it looks like it's going to uh, continue on. It looks like the best threat of some uh, appreciable rain for today will be in eastern areas, but thunderstorms will continue to become more widespread this afternoon and evening. It's all thanks to an area of low pressure tracking to the east. It's the system that brought the initial batch of rain yesterday. It started to move into the region. It's now moving through the region today. Scattered thunderstorms increasing in coverage as they track to the east and northeast. Eastern areas to the east of Highway 281, looking at that best chance to see the most rain. Some severe storms possible, especially if you're along and east of a line from Norfolk to Kearney and Hayes in Kansas. Now this uh, slight risk of severe storms area has changed about three times for today. This is the latest one along and east of a line from Norfolk to Kearney and Hayes in Kansas. It's where we do have a slight risk of severe storms. That risk even greater along and south of a line from Dodge City to Wichita in southwest and south central Kansas. That earlier had been a little bit further to the north on the enhanced risk. It's now from Dodge City to Wichita and points to the south, that enhanced risk of severe storms. The primary threat will be some hail up to the size of golf balls, wind gusts up to 70, and some localized flooding. We are seeing, of course, some flooding of some rivers and creeks in portions of central Kansas because of the heavy rains over the last day or so. There is a small chance of a tornado primarily near and southeast of a line from the Tri-Cities to Phillipsburg. Many central and east locations looking at the potential of an additional three-quarters to an inch of rain as these thunderstorms once again get going as they move through the day today and the heating of the day starts uh, getting things going. Now, tomorrow through Monday will be mostly dry. The best chance of thunderstorms coming up on Friday night, especially across the north and east. Some of those storms could be severe. Daytime highs mostly warmer than normal, but temperatures over the weekend more seasonal on the backside of that area of low pressure moving through on Friday. In our long-term forecast, that likelihood remains high for warmer-than-normal temperatures in Nebraska and Kansas for Sunday all the way through June 11th. We're going to stay warm here for a while. Northwest and north-central Nebraska expecting to see near-normal rainfall Sunday through June 11th. But eastern Nebraska and along and south of I-80 into all of Kansas, below normal rainfall in the forecast Sunday through the 11th. Today is the 10th anniversary of a major severe weather event in central Nebraska and Kansas. Severe thunderstorms on the state produced a very large hail, damaging straight-line winds and heavy rain. It was on the state in 2008. Several tornadoes reported from near Elwood to north of York. Two tornadoes causing damage in Kearney and includes major damage, the most memorable damage to the Buffalo County Fairgrounds at the Expo Center. Several tornadoes reported from south of Palco, Kansas to Jewel, in Jewel County there, one tornado destroyed the town's cafe there and water tower in Jewel. 
In our ag weather for today, weather factors driving the markets include a wide variable variability in Midwest rain prospects and a hot and dry trend in the wheat areas of South Russia. The remnants of Tropical Storm Alberto should move through the Midwest by midweek. Rain with Alberto could total an additional 2 to 6 inches in parts of the southeast U.S. and the eastern Corn Belt. That could lead to some flooding. Western areas of the Midwest will be drier along with very warm to hot weather. That could lead to some possible stress for crops in the early growth stages. In the southern plains, northern portions have received some beneficial rain and locally heavy rain. High heat and dryness, though, continue to stress the crops in the rest of the southern plains. The key southern Russian wheat area had a dry and hot weekend. It's also dry. This That hot and dry pattern is leading to some stress for their winter wheat. Australia wheat areas also mainly dry for this week. Boy, you remind us of that 2008 event. Yes. I remember that, looking over at that building. Yes, it was amazing to see that massive building just all crumpled into crumpled nothing. In. It looked like a, like a kid's toy, and then he just bashed it to, <laughs> to kingdom come. Holy smokes. The yep. fury of Mother Nature. You never Absolutely. know. Yep, and that's a powerful, powerful thing. And uh, we want to remind you that our weather has been brought to you by Coolman Repair this time around. When you need weather anytime, krbn.com. U.S. nod for Monsanto nearing end of two-year quest. I'm Shaylee Peters joining you now on the Rural Radio Network as we take a midday look at your ag news. Bayer Ag won U.S. antitrust approval for its $66 billion takeover of Monsanto Company, clearing the last major regulatory hurdle to forming the world's biggest seed and agricultural chemicals provider after a nearly two-year review. The company's reached a settlement with the Justice Department that resolves the government's concerns that the merger has initially structured would harm consumers and farmers. The U.S. said in a statement today, the agreement requires the sale of assets to BASF SE that Bayer has previously announced. The divestiture package is worth about $9 billion, the largest in a U.S. merger enforcement case, the government said. America's farm system is of critical importance to our economy, to our food system, and to our way of life, the head of the par- the head of the department's antitrust division said on a call with reporters, Americans, farmers, and consumers rely on head-to-head competition between Bayer and Monsanto. For Bayer, acquiring Monsanto is the last step in a corporate transformation as the 154-year-old company shed its plastics business and remade itself as a life science company with equally sized health and agriculture units. Once the deal is through, three global behemoths will dominate the world's agriculture industry, a prospect that has left farmers worried about the possibility of higher prices and less choice. And Nebraska's Haskell Ag Lab gets reprieve from budget cuts. Planting and field work progress as they usually do this time of year at the Haskell Ag Laboratory. Earlier this year, as part of an $11 million in cuts suggested by the university leaders to comply with Governor Pete Ricketts' request for a 4% reduction to the university system's current budget, the lab got a second life when the legislature passed a budget requiring only a 1% reduction. The lower amount allowed university administrators to find other ways to make ends meet without closing the 61-year-old facility, where researchers have studied ag practices such as crop and livestock production, crop nutrition, irrigation and water management, soil science, and weed disease and pest management. Relieved with the reprieve, university leaders and lab supporters are committed to making Haskell more responsive to Northeast Nebraskans' needs and hopefully keep it off future budget cut lists. 
And the U.S. Department of Agriculture reminds dairy farmers of the June 1 deadline to enroll in the improved margin protection program for dairy. Many producers will see payments in early June depending on the coverage they elect. The program protects dairy producers by paying them based on the difference between the national all-milk price and the national average feed costs. The 2018 Bipartisan Budget Act made several changes to the safety net program to provide better protections for dairy producers from shifting milk and feed prices. MPP Dairy is an important improved safety net tool for the dairy industry, said Bill Northey, Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation. We encourage all dairy producers to carefully weigh their options and make their way to one of our 2100 FSA offices nationwide to discuss signing up for the program before the June 1 deadline. Updates include calculation of the margin period is monthly rather than bi-monthly. Covered production is increased to 5 million pounds on the Tier 1 premium schedule and premium rates for the Tier 1 are substantially lowered. And an exemption for paying an administrative fee for a limited resource beginning veteran and socially disadvantaged producers. Dairy operators enrolled in the previous 2018 enrollment period that qualify for this exemption under the new provisions may request a refund. That's a quick look at your midday ag news. You're listening to the Rural Radio Network. It's summertime and that means kids are out on summer break, but it also means that parents are responsible for more meals. And it's a tough time occasionally getting kids to eat the right amount of vegetables. What do you do? We find out on the Rural Radio Network, talking with Janet Riley, Executive Vice President of Communications for the North American Meat Institute. And Janet, you guys have come up with a system of mixing beef and vegetables to make those vegetables more appetizing to kids. We wanted to make sure that we can help moms solve their challenges in feeding kids healthy, balanced meals. And as a mom, I can fully appreciate how difficult it is sometimes to get kids to eat vegetables in particular. So what we've done is paired some favorite beef items with some vegetables and fruits because kids are more inclined to try something new or something that may not be as appealing to them when it's paired with a favorite food, you know, like a hot dog or roast beef or bologna or something like that. Can you give us a few quick examples of a few of these recipes? The first one is called a barber's pole, and really all we've done is wrap some pastrami around a carrot stick and made it just a little bit more interesting, a little bit more tasty for the kid's palate. Uh, in, in another case, we've taken some bologna, and if you fry a bologna, it forms a nifty little cup. And so we are filling the bologna with apple salad uh, or with mashed potatoes and vegetables. And it's really interesting how it looks. It's very intriguing to the eye. And so it gets kids to eat more of those fruits and vegetables. Janet, you've just rolled out these kid-pleasing beef recipes. Do you guys kind of have a timeline or a time frame of where you'll be waiting to hear reactions to how the recipes went? And what are, what are you hoping to see reaction-wise to this? Oh, we hope that we'll see a lot of moms try these with their kids because um, we know that these beef products like pastrami and roast beef and, and hot dogs and jerky, they're satisfying, they're nutritious, and they give kids really critical vitamins and minerals like iron and B12. So we're hoping we're going to see more people um, use these favorite beef products as anchors to get kids to increase their fruit and vegetable consumption. It's interesting that in the U.S., uh, the protein category is the one food group that, that we're consuming at the proper levels, but we're really under-consuming fruits, vegetables, and whole grains. 
we think this could be a real help. And there's another benefit. Beef has uh, nutrients in it that can kind of help your body get nutrients out of vegetables. So, for example, beef is a rich source of what we call heme iron, which is the most absorbable form of, of iron. Now, vegetables have non-heme iron, and the body doesn't absorb non-heme iron as well. But when you pair a source of heme iron with a source of non-heme iron, like beef with spinach or beef with green bean, for example, you're going to be able to pull more of that iron out. We've also offered ideas about how to make them visually interesting, like the green bean twists have roast beef wrapped around the green bean, and they just look pretty. And that may seem silly, but for kids, the visual appeal is really important. And these are also easy to prepare, and you can try to engage your child in helping prepare the food. And research shows that when you, when your child helps prepare the food, they're more invested in it and more likely to try it. That's Janet Riley, Senior Vice President of Public Affairs for the North American Meat Institute, bringing us the latest in what North American Meat Institute partnered with the Beef Checkoff is doing. A lot of exciting work coming up here and really excited to see the results from these new beef kid-pleaser recipes. Keep listening to the Rural Radio Network. You're listening to Midday on the Rural Radio Network. It's 25 after the hour. Time to check sports with Brandon Metz. Good afternoon, Dirk. History is working against the Washington Capitals right now after the Game 1 loss to the brand-new Vegas Golden Knights in the Stanley Cup Final last night. Since the final went to a best-of-seven format all the way back in 1939, the winner of Game 1 has gone on to hoist the Stanley Cup in the last six years and 61 of the total 78 times. Tomas Nosek scored the tie-breaking goal midway through the third period and added an empty net goal in the closing seconds that helped the Golden Knights beat Washington 6-4 in Game 1. The expansion team Golden Knights have spent their entire inaugural season speeding past all expectations, not just in hockey, but really in all of sports as well, and their first final game didn't slow them down in the least. Vegas will host Game 2 tomorrow night. And the Golden State Warriors move on to face the Cleveland Cavaliers for the NBA championship for the fourth consecutive year. The Warriors are used to making things look easy, but they had to overcome one of their toughest tests last night to return to the NBA Finals. In the last two games of the Western Conference Finals, they had to climb out of huge holes just to beat the Houston Rockets. Klay Thompson, Stephen Curry, and Kevin Durant combined to score a total of 47 points in the second half and pulled away from the Rockets that missed 27 straight three-pointers from the second quarter to the halfway mark of the fourth quarter. The Warriors are now the 15 in NBA history to advance to the finals in four straight seasons. In Paris, Rafael Nadal narrowly avoided dropping a set at the French Open for the first time in three years and finished off a rain-interrupted victory over a player who was ranked 129th in the world. Beginning his bid for a record-extending 11th championship at Roland Garros, Nadal needed to erase a four-point set to close things out. The Pittsburgh Pirates are upset with Anthony Rizzo after the Chicago Cubs star slid hard into catcher Elias Diaz while being forced out at home yesterday afternoon. Rizzo claimed he wasn't trying to hurt anyone when he went leg first into Diaz, who had already touched home plate for the force out and was a full step in front of the base. Diaz says Rizzo apologized to him during his next at-bat, which occurred in the ninth inning. Elsewhere in the majors, Yankee star slugger Giancarlo Stanton was hoping yesterday's day off will finally get him going. Last year's NL MVP has struck out in all four at-bats yesterday afternoon at home versus the Los Angeles Angels. And Michigan Governor Rick Snyder is expected to sign into law bills inspired by the Larry Nassar scandal at Michigan State, including one that would give childhood sexual abuse victims more time to sue. The cutoff to file a lawsuit in Michigan is currently a victim's 19th birthday, which critics say is out of step with the laws in other states and doesn't account for how many other victims are afraid to report abuse or even 
have suppressed it. The state Senate passed a bill earlier today that would allow people who are sexually abused as children to sue until their 28th birthday or three years from when they realized they had been abused. As a result, Nasser's victims would now get a 90-day window to sue retroactively. Governor Snyder is also expected to sign legislation that would give prosecutors additional time to file charges in second- and third-degree sexual conduct cases if the victim is younger than 18 years old. That's a look at sports. Stay tuned. More of Midday is straight ahead. You're listening to the Rural Radio Network. Mostly cloudy with a chance of thunderstorms in Nebraska tonight. Lows in the low 60s. I'm Dave Schroeder. An Omaha businessman who plans to run as an independent candidate for Nebraska State Treasurer is challenging state requirements that make it difficult for nonpartisan candidates to file for office. Kent Burnbeck said he filed the federal lawsuit to challenge the constitutionality of a law that substantially increased the number of signatures nonpartisan candidates must collect to be listed on the general election ballot. Candidates now need roughly 120,000 signatures, but the previous threshold was 4,000. The law was introduced by Senator John Moranti of Gretna, who is a GOP candidate for state treasurer. Burnbeck plans to run against him if the lawsuit is successful. Burnbeck is being represented by the Voting Rights Project of the American Civil Liberties Union. A woman accused of beating a two-year-old child in Grand Island has been given a year of probation. Court records say 22-year-old Michaela Hill pleaded no contest to misdemeanor negligent child abuse after prosecutors lowered the charge from felony intentional child abuse. Police say the child suffered a detached retina, among several other injuries. The child's father has pleaded not guilty to misdemeanor negligent child abuse and false reporting. The trial of 26-year-old Justin Moult is scheduled to begin in July in Hall County Court. Police say a two-year-old and a five-year-old boy were among five people injured in a northeast Omaha collision. It occurred around 5.30 Monday afternoon when a sedan and a sport utility vehicle collided at an intersection. An SUV was speeding when it struck the car. Witness accounts vary on which driver had the right-of-way at the light. The SUV driver and a passenger walked away from the scene and are being sought by police. Another passenger in the SUV was taken to a hospital. The two boys and a 16-year-old girl injured in the car were taken to a hospital, as was the car driver, 18-year-old Markeisha Devers. Another car passenger wasn't injured. A former Kansas inmate alleges in a lawsuit that most of her colon had to be removed because prison officials ignored her requests for medication. Sarah Loretta Cook, who is 68, filed the lawsuit this month against the Kansas Department of Corrections and its health care provider, Corazon Health. She says she asked for months for her needed medication, but Corazon employees ignored evidence of her profuse bleeding and deteriorating medical condition. Reporting from the KRVN News Center, I'm Dave Schroeder. The UNL Panhandle Research and Extension Center in Scotts Bluff is home to a variety of research projects in crops, livestock, and agriculture in general. Each year, the center welcomes several graduate students from the University of Lincoln to work on their master's through research projects. With the Rural Radio Network, I'm Chabella Guzman. Bethany Bergstrom of Axdale is one of the graduate students who is working on her master's in entomology. She is studying two aspects of controlling the wheat stem sawfly this summer through tillage and their enemy, the parasitoid wasp. 
So my project is working with uh, the wheat stem sawfly, Cepha synctus, and so I'm working on a way of trying to yeah, we're on two projects. One of them is looking at tillage, and so does tillage, either no-till, tilling once or tilling twice, does that affect the emergence of the sawfly? But it also has two natural parasitoids. They're braconid parasitoids, brachycephy and brachycelligaster. They are also native to the area, and so what they do is they will actually infest the larvae and kill the larvae in the wheat stem of the wheat stem sawfly. And I'm trying to figure out if, you know, with the tillage, Will that affect the wheat stem sawfly emergence or the parasitoid emergence in low parasitism numbers versus, you know, really, really high infested sites? Bergstrom will also be looking at the ecology of the sawfly and how it evolved into the fly it is today. The ecology um, between this sawfly and the panhandle of Nebraska versus the sand hills of Nebraska. And so the wheat stem sawfly historically used to emerge about 20 days later than what it does now, but through adaptation it left the um, infesting mainly either late season, cool season grasses or warm season grasses, and it moved up into emerging earlier from, when, from spring wheat and now into winter wheat, and so it emerges an entirely new you know, complex of wheat. But we don't know if the parasitoids have also adapted along with the wheat stem sawfly. Bergstrom says the parasitoids have two life cycles in the summer and the wheat stem sawfly only has one, which raises some more questions. And so we don't exactly know in Nebraska where the other, you know, where the other life cycle, where is it, you know, or what are the other things they're infesting. The other project Bergstrom is working on includes the wheat stem sawfly and tilling. She explains how the project works. So, so far what I've been doing is with my two studies, so I have my one study site where it is over a field where we know that it had, I believe it was 87% infestation of the wheat stem sawfly last year. And so I have, um, I have 10 different plots with three treatments, so no-till, single-till, and double-till. And I have emergence cages, which are these fun little cages. It's like a wood base that we dig into the ground, and then there is a, a very fine metal mesh network on top then it comes to a little plastic container on the top and so the insects will emerge and we'll catch them inside the emergence trap and they'll come to the very top and so I'm trying to see if there is a difference between no-till single till or tilling twice on the emergence that we get along with the emergence samples Bergstrom also does sweep samples at five locations in the panhandle so let's say for one place over here I'll be sweeping you know um, the wheat field and then across the road is you know a ranch that has cattle on it and they have crested wheatgrass or intermediate wheatgrass or you know smooth brome that I'm sweeping that too to try to see because the wheat stem softly not only infests wheat but it originally came from you know like wheat grasses and other other native grasses so trying to find out you know where are they and then later on with my project I'm going to be going into, I'm going to be taking some of those wheat stems and the grass stems and I'm going to be dissecting them and looking for the actual infestation rate between the different types of wheat and the different species of grasses that we have in Nebraska. The parasitoid wasps may prove to be an environmental pesticide for the wheat stem sawfly if Bergstrom says they can figure out some of these questions. Since chemical pesticides are not as the wheat stem sawfly, we want to try to have the parasitoids get the conservation biocontrol to have them come through and take care of the wheat stem sawfly. 
For Bergstrom, working indoors is only part of her laboratory. She explains how important it is to work in nature as the other part of her laboratory. Not everything can be duplicated in a lab. A lot of people think of graduate school as you are in a lab, you have chemicals, and you're running, you know, even molecular tests or, you know, other different kinds of, you know, tests on different things. But a lot of the beauty about, you know, for grad school, for me, you know, here at, here at UNL, here at the research center, is that I'm able to go out, you know, in nature and really see how things are happening, you know, when they're emerging, how are they infesting populations. You know, my family farms, so I understand really clearly, you know, how the weather dictates your life, how insects can come in and just take over a field. And sometimes you can do things about it, and sometimes you can't. And I think that it's really important to be able to be in the field and really see what's out there. Because being out in nature is almost, you know, some of the clearest views that we have of the world around us. And about the beauty of adding, you know, science to agriculture to the community. You get that outside. Bethany Bergstrom of Axtell is studying as a research graduate assistant for Nebraska Extension Entomologist Specialist Jeff Bradshaw in Scotts Bluff. She is only one of several graduate students at the Panhandle Research and Extension Center working on crops and other aspects of agriculture. With the Rural Radio Network, I'm Chabella Guzman. Next, we talk with Joe Teal, Great Plains Commodities. Joe, it has been said before about the volatility in the livestock futures. Well, they weren't the only ones today. They weren't the only ones. The uh, hogs also had some volatility, plus most of the grains. Uh, <laughs> kind of a uh, ups- topsy-turvy type day. The uh, cattle finishing uh, lower to sharply lower uh, uh, not good. Uh, the cattle on feed report on uh, Friday was near neutral. I mean, they came in pretty close to what the estimates were, and uh, there was a lot of bear spreading. I'll have to say that because of the uh, placement numbers still as anticipated, but uh, the market saw a lot of uh, bear spreading, selling the front, buying the back. Uh, cutouts at noon were a little bit higher in the choice, but uh, didn't seem to make much difference. Didn't hear of any cattle trade. What uh, few, very, very few traded uh, yesterday were at uh, lower money. So that didn't help uh, matters much. The feeders are going to finish mixed. They did manage to make a comeback after the grains uh, uh, sold off after being higher overnight. Uh, uh, and uh, they came under some pressure but bounced back for the most part to close mixed. Over the hogs, the cash a little bit firmer, cutouts higher also, and uh, that brought on uh, some pretty good buying in the in the hogs. Triple-digit gains out of the front months uh, in the hogs. Thanks, Joe. Joe Teal, Great Plains Commodities. You can call Joe at 800-328-0134. Of course, we're going to need some positive cash cattle trade this week to reignite the talk in the market about the big spread between cash and futures. This is the Rural Radio Network. Using global opportunities to promote beef. Good afternoon. I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. Joan Ruskamp, who's the Beef Board Chairman and also a producer from Nebraska, recently returned from an overseas trip, an opportunity to promote beef in Japan and China. So we started in Beijing 
and we had one day to kind of adjust ourselves to being about 13 hours off, but really got a chance to immerse ourselves into the culture a little bit by um, seeing the Great Wall and the Forbidden City and learning about the culture. And so when you are marketing to anyone, in this particular a country, you first have to understand how they eat, what they eat, what's, what do they like, what, what's important to them. And one of the things that really struck me is they don't have ovens. So the Chinese people use like a, a stovetop, um, maybe a single element, and that's how they prepare their food, either in a wok or a fry pan or a kettle or a steamer basket, that they're either boiling something like stews or um, steaming something or stir-frying in oil the foods that they eat. For them, price is significant, and so they eat a lot of the lower-quality cuts, as we would call them, and um, they eat a lot of poultry and pork, a lot of pork, and so beef isn't a large part of their diet yet, and if it is, it's it's lower quality because they put it in stews and things like that. If folks uh, don't follow you on Twitter, they need to, Joan, because I think, you know, the pictures and the descriptions that you gave while, while you're talking, I pulled it up because you, you met with producers as well when you were in China. Right, right. There's there's a connection with people when you start talking about families and and what you do. And I think that really, he spoke Chinese, I spoke English. And so we were actually using a Google app um, Google Translate, and I would type in my sentence or question, and then he would type in his response, and we would just went back and forth. I also brought a book I made on Shutterfly that went through four seasons on our farm, and so that first picture he saw in the book was our family, and that's why he looked at me, and then I explained who was in the picture, and he looked at me, and then, and then he talked to his wife, and she looked at me. <laughs> <laughs> And then that's when he says, five children, you are a hero. <laughs> um, well, some days probably I felt like that, but uh, it's really a blessing to have children and then now grandchildren. Uh, but we connected We connected with our family, and then the story of our farm went from there, and, and that we have winter, and, and that we use uh, row crops like corn to finish our cattle, and that, that's what give us, gives that taste and that tenderness that that in the world, the United States owns that. We own the taste and tenderness that corn-fed beef offers the world. And so um, we don't have to find a niche. That's that's where we are in the world. And when we can bring that into a market somewhere, expose people to it, um, and allow recipe development to fit their culture. Don't bring our methods and say, this is what you have to do. Because like they don't have grills, so they're not going to grill steak for supper. Um, but what will they make? What will they make the really thinly sliced beef that they can grill real quick in a in a little pot or a little fry pan or something or, or put it in a little boiled type of thing or in a rice bowl? There's a lot of ways they can utilize it. And so it's really, we're at the beginning in China because we have been gone and we need to be a reliable source, a trustworthy source. Those comments with Joan Ruskamp. I'm Susan Littlefield on the World Radio Network. Dewey Nelson on the Rural Radio Network. We're joined by John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniels Ag Marketing in Chicago and publisher of the newsletter This Week in Grain. Grain didn't show up uh, today at the end of the session, even though we didn't close on the lows. Yeah, I, I'm pretty pretty nice to see that we did bounce there uh, off the 396, 397 area on the July. I think we'll 
will bounce here. This is plenty of support under this market, and it's way too early. I think one way or the other to be calling a crop. You know, I, it's just one of those years that I think you got to be very careful. Uh, the early heat obviously got the bulls in a, in a little bit of a stir in the overnights, and then uh, you know that combined with uh, the the mountain of selling in crude oil and the stock market early this morning, the dollar getting really strong. I think the the funds are you know a little nervous here and probably pulling some commodity positions. But just from an overall corn market standpoint. You know, this is this is volatile weather, and this is just the start, of my opinion, of a very very sharp summer. You're going to see a very good opportunity to market market corn, and then buy corn as well. I think that uh, uh, you know we're going to have chances of rain here, I, and I'm looking more Des Moines, Iowa, Center Iowa. I think that's really the the fear right now is the the southwest problems in Texas are going to spread northeast and get into the main part of the corn belt. At this point, regardless, it's too early to get too twisted up about it. But when you look at the two week forecast. Not much, not many chances of rain out at the back end of that. And if you kick that out two weeks further and we don't have rain again, you start getting into July, and that's where the concerns could really pop up. So I'd be a buyer on breaks. I think, you know, 40 is still the target. Uh, use, use these breaks to secure calls if you haven't done it already. All right. Now, turning our attention to winter wheat, um, a lot's going to be said in the next couple of weeks as to how the yields are in the dry southwestern plains. That will probably affect the market. Yeah. I, it's two stories. You have the, the the southwestern plains. This late rain, I think, in the southeast isn't helping anybody uh, there either. But it's really a Russian story now. And unfortunately, you know, like we are in the corn. The U.S. is the corn market maker. Uh, wheat is made overseas now, and in Russia, uh, you know, looking at ten percent difference in crop changes year over year, I still think that will have a decent size. And I, I'd be more on the skew of protecting this price here, uh, or even maybe looking at hedging for next year, uh, given that you can get 620 or 625 this morning. Um, but for me, I think the overall grain complex in general should be pretty steady here. Uh, we sh- hopefully will get new good news towards the end of the week as uh, Com- Commerce Secretary Ross is negotiating. Uh, hopefully increased uh, ag purchase from China, and that would be wheat. Uh, I think we might see some more wheat purchase. So I'd be, I'd be hesitant here to chase this lower. Thanks, John. John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniels Ag Marketing in Chicago. Again, he is publisher of the newsletter This Week in Grain. Find out more. Go to DanielsAgMarketing.com. You're listening to the Rural Radio Network.